Hi everyone, David Harris here with you for Criminal Injustice and a news bonus, The Conviction of Harvey Weinstein on Sexual Assault Charges. You probably know by now that on February 24th, a New York jury convicted former movie producer, entertainment mogul, TV executive, entertainment colossus, Harvey Weinstein, of two counts of sexual assault. Of course, Weinstein was the biggest name among many big names uh, that fueled the Me Too movement when disclosures about his predatory sexual behavior with people over years and decades, when that all surfaced in reporting by The New Yorker and The New York Times back in 2017. So this was a tremendously important case for that reason, if for no other. But there's plenty here to talk about, and I'd like to sort through some of it for you. So, number one, what was he convicted of? Well, there were five counts he was facing. He was convicted on two. There were two women whose uh, allegations still were allowed to come to court given the statute of limitations. There were other women who made allegations whose cases were so long ago that the statute of limitations had passed. But these two women came forward and testified about the two different incidents in which he had sexually assaulted the two of them. Then there were four other women who came forward, and they also testified, though their cases were too far back in time or other, there were other problems with them, but they testified in support of the predator sexual offense charges that made up the remainder of the indictment. And this, uh, in New York state law, goes to the fact that the allegation is there's a pattern of predatory sexual behavior. So Weinstein was convicted of the two sexual assault counts, one count of rape, one count of criminal sexual assault, um, and then on the predatory sexual behavior counts, he was acquitted. So two convictions, three acquittals. Um, this is highly significant just given his position and the public nature of these cases, but there are a lot of important sub-issues here and points that need to be considered, and I think it's important to understand this in the broader historical and legal context in which this case sits. One of the things that happened right afterwards was that the district attorney of Manhattan, Cyrus Vance, came out and made a statement. And he said some interesting things. Uh, he said, of course, that he was glad for the convictions, uh, that he was glad that the women had been believed who had come forward. Um, and he said this. Rape is rape, whether the survivor reports within an hour, within a year, or perhaps never. It's rape despite the complicated dynamics of power and consent after an assault. It's rape even if there is no physical evidence and even if it happened a long time ago. And Vance is right about that. I mean, I think that really does state the, uh, the, the, the circumstances very, very well. Uh, it's rape no matter when it happens, no matter what else happens, no matter how long ago it's been. But I do think a little healthy skepticism for Cyrus Vance is in order. I give him tremendous credit and his office and his prosecutors for going ahead and getting this conviction because, as I'll explain in a few minutes, uh, this was not a slam dunk. Um, uh, number two, uh, it's worth remembering 
that Cy uh, Vance's office was under tremendous pressure to bring these cases forward. Not only was there incredible public pressure that uh, Weinstein deserved some kind of a reckoning, should be held criminally accountable for his years, even decades of this kind of predatory sexual behavior, but Cy uh, Vance's office had been found wanting uh, uh, in cases involving this very same defendant. For instance, in 2015, uh, an Italian model came forward, said that Weinstein had made advances toward her and had groped her, all unconsented, all unwanted, and she even had him on audio tape basically admitting that. And Vance's office had refused to go forward. They did not think that the evidence was sufficient. So in a certain respect, um, it's a good thing they went forward and won, uh, but they had a lot to make up for, I guess. That's what I'm saying here. Uh, now, uh, number two uh, point, um, you know, there's been talk for years since the Me Too movement really got started. People will tell you, believe all women or believe the victims. And I think there's a couple of important things to say about that here. Uh, it is clear from the verdict that the jury believed two of the victims, but not all of the victims who came forward, because if the jury had believed even one of those other women um, coming forward uh, whose uh, cases were not within the statute of limitations, couldn't be formally charged, they would have also found Weinstein guilty on the predatory sexual behavior counts, and they didn't. Beyond just the fact that the jury didn't buy the idea that you believe all victims, I think it's worth pointing out that the idea of believe all victims or believe all women is great as a slogan, perhaps, but it's not the way the law has ever worked or ever will work or, in my own opinion, ever should work. There's nobody you could put in that category, in that blank in the sentence, believe all blank, uh, where you'd get me personally to go along with it uh, because it's simply not the world we live in. Uh, you might say uh, women are worth believing or something like that, but you can't say believe all victims because, as in point of fact, not all victims come forward with believable stories, even if most of them do. Not all of them are, are believable or should be given credit. We should simply readjust things so that, for the most part, the allegations of women are taken absolutely seriously, unless there is some real reason not to do it, uh, and we should go from there. Now, I, I want to talk for just a couple of minutes, though, really about what this all means. Uh, it is very, very significant, I think. Uh, and that is because too often in the past, we have looked for the, quote, perfect victim in sexual assault cases, the perfect victim. What do I mean by that? Well, it's meant different things at different times. It's kind of shifted. But what I mean by that in general is we have looked for victims to behave and be a certain kind of person and behave in a certain kind of way post-sexual assault that we now know is simply not realistic. Uh, it used to be that victims of sexual assault uh, when they went forward with a case, when they testified about an assault, they would get cross-examined about their own uh, uh, sexual likes and dislikes, their sexual behavior, uh, the way they had dressed, if they had, quote, 
asked for it in some way? Did they drink with the man? Did they wear a short skirt? Something like that. That was all a way of saying this victim does not deserve the protection of the law. She asked for it. She behaved a certain way. She did not fit our preconceptions. And that is just wrong. Um, uh, those ways of cross-examining, for instance, were done away with with rape shield laws that began to be passed in the states decades ago, 70s, 80s, 90s, and the federal government finally catching up sometime after that, having its own rape shield law and the federal rules of evidence. They say, that stuff's off limits. You can't use uh, a victim's a sexual history, her sexual proclivities, or anything else uh, in a sexual assault case against her. But we still have many stereotypes uh, abounding in our culture uh, that have kept uh, uh, victims of sexual assault from being believed. And this is the real core of things here. We have thought incorrectly that if a person was raped, uh, that person would never have a consensual relationship again with the victimizer. We have thought that the person would never go back to the victimizer, have any kind of relationship whatsoever with the person who had victimized her. Um, these things were what was on the line, really, in the Harvey Weinstein case. It was about other things, too. It was about people in power, very powerful men never being held accountable, being allowed to be predators, being enabled by so many people. Um, it certainly was about that. But it, what it changes is not everything about sexual assault. For instance, the believe all victims thing, that's not changed, and it shouldn't. We should still have some degree of skepticism about any criminal complaint. But what it changes is this idea that we have to have a perfect victim in order to win a sexual assault case and for a prosecutor to bring a sexual assault case and for a police officer to do a thorough investigation of allegations of sexual assault. The victim must fit our cultural stereotypes of perfection, resisting the assault, reporting it immediately, um, never seeing, never, never having any relationship with the abuser again. None of these things turn out to be strictly true. They don't all fit every situation in which there's been a sexual assault. But as Cy Vance said, it's still sexual assault. It's still rape. And if this case changes one thing, this is what it'll be. It opens the door of justice to victims whose cases don't fit those very traditional, stereotypical, uh, and in certain ways, incorrect ways of thinking about how victims behave. In this case, uh, both of the main victims who the jury uh, found to be believable and where they gave convictions, both of those cases involved so-called imperfect victims. They had continuing relationships with Weinstein. One of them even had a romantic relationship with Weinstein. Uh, and this made those cases risky. That's what I was saying before. It was not a slam dunk because juries have not always been willing to, to give convictions in cases that didn't seem, quote, perfect as far as the victims go. Uh, the prosecutors put on not only the victims but experts in sexual assault cases, uh, people who, who had uh, 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 counseled sexual assault victims over the years, and that expert talked about how sexual assault victims respond in a variety of ways. 
Um, not all of them cut off the abuser. Not all of them uh, 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 won't ever talk to the person again or continue a relationship with them. And this is the real learning of the case for our culture. So the way I see this is it's a watershed moment uh, doing away with that perfect victim stereotype. And we have to make sure that this penetrates down into uh, jury pools, which is all of us, of course, but also into police officers who investigate these cases, into prosecutors who decide whether to bring charges, uh, and into the minds of judges. All of that is part of a long-term cultural change on sexual assault. I see this as being not a new thing, but the latest stage in legal and cultural change that started with those rape shield laws of the 70s and 80s decades ago. So that's the long-term perspective here. I really think it's worth keeping in mind uh, that we are probably not done seeing changes in this area, but this case uh, has taught us some cultural lessons. Hopefully it's got police officers willing to go forward in more cases involving victims and prosecutors willing to go forward uh, and charge more of these cases, take them to trial as necessary, and not just against the powerful uh, and the prominent. Certainly it will go a long way there, uh, but against everyday abusers because that's where most of what happens in the system is. It isn't people like Harvey Weinstein. It isn't people like, say, Matt Lauer or people like that. It's just regular people, and we need to have justice for the regular people who wind up as victims. That's it. The convictions in Harvey Weinstein's case, two convictions, one for rape and one for sexual assault, um, we'll be following all of the happenings in that case because it's not over. He's still going to be sentenced, and then he has more charges to face in Los Angeles. You can always go to our website. That's criminalinjusticepodcast.com for all of the latest legal news. And you'll also find our interviews with the most interesting and consequential people in the criminal justice sphere on that website. We're now a listener-supported show. Go to patreon.com slash criminalinjustice if you like what you hear and you want to chip in. Thanks. I am David Harris, and I'll be back with you next time. Criminal Injustice is written by David Harris and produced by Josh Rollerson. Find show notes and past episodes at criminalinjusticepodcast.com. 